You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. The following is a recording of the Ayn Rand Institute's Philosophy for Living on Earth webinar series. Sign up to attend the next webinar live at courses.aynrand.org forward slash webinars forward slash register. What are rights and where do they come from? By Harry Binswanger. Welcome to the ARI Philosophy for Living on Earth webinar. I'm Harry Binswanger, and our topic today is one of supreme importance. The topic is what are rights and where do they come from? Consider this picture of New York in 1750, a hustling, bustling place. 200 years later, it was this, an unimaginably different world. The cause of that change is the moral principle of individual rights. The reason why the Industrial Revolution occurred the technological revolution, the information revolution, and if we have enough rights, the coming biological revolution is due to the fact that men have recognized to some extent individual rights. Preeminently, they recognize it here in America. You know the declaration which is shown on this slide we hold these truths to be self-evident. It spoke of unalienable rights. The right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of happiness in particular is the egoist element featured. The egoism is implicit in all rights, but this features the um, egoistic element that's present in rights. So the founding of the country was based on the principle of individual rights, and that's why America achieved the most. Now, you hear theories about, well, we had natural resources. Brazil has more natural resources than we do. Russia has more natural resources than we do. England, who was ahead of us at the beginning, and was the preeminent country in the world, had almost no natural resources. Coal was about the only thing that they had. So it's not about natural resources or the frontier or any of the other superficial explanations you hear. The cause of America's progress, material progress, and progress towards a humane and civilized society is the principle of individual rights. This is the woman who solved the questions that we're going to an, uh, answer today. That is, she answered the questions that solved the problem of rights. What are rights and why do we have them? So what is a right? Too few other thinkers in history even ask that question, but we need obviously to know what it is we're talking about in order to have a theory of rights, have a theory of X, you have to know what X is. 
I'm going to quote from Ayn Rand's definition of the principle of rights. A right is, and I'm going to do it in stages, a moral principle, and that alone sets her theory apart from most theories in the history of philosophy. All the influential theories regarded rights as either divine gifts or subjective congressional decrees. None of them regarded rights as a moral principle. They couldn't really afford to do that because they held that morality was either a divine decree or a social decree. <clears throat> but Ayn Rand held that morality is objective, absolute, stemming from the nature of existence from the fact that man has to act in order to survive. And a right is a moral principle covering a certain thing. Now we get to the issue in their definition that separates a theory of rights from a theory of say justice or a theory of obligation or a theory of virtue. It's a moral principle concerning freedom. There are many things that it is not right to do, which you have a right to do, because moral right and political right are two different things. Political right is a moral right to freedom, to make your own decision. It's wrong to take drugs. For the same reason, it's wrong to go to church. Marx was right when he said religion is the opiate of the masses. And we have an opiate of the masses addiction right now. That's the real opioid addiction. But the um, principle of rights says you get to make the decision whether you will take drugs. You have a right to take drugs. That is, you have a right to decide what enters your body. You have a right to your own ideas, even if you have mistaken and mystical ideas, like the uh, right to go to church or to attend the Church of Global Warming. There is no such thing as the right to only do what's morally right or only, do, only believe what's logically demonstrably true. You have a right to freedom freedom to think for yourself, to judge for yourself, to act for yourself. That's what rights are. And that's what people don't get. That's the difference between people who get the concept of rights and people who don't. Today, this is missing entirely. For instance, Trump decides, well, the trade deficit with China is against our interest. It isn't, but that's what he's saying. So I'm putting on a tariff. What about the freedom of individuals to buy and sell as they choose fit using their own property? Well, what about, how does that enter in? I mean, that's not even considered, neither by Trump nor by his opponents, the right of people to trade with people in China and the right of people in China to trade with us. That's the fundamental. So a right is the principle that protects you as the chooser 
Ayn Rand says it sanctions a man's freedom, meaning it says it's good that he have this freedom. But it also, before that, she says, defines man's freedom. You don't have a full understanding of what you should be free to do unless you work it out through a theory of rights. I can concretize that in the question and answer period if you want me to. It gets um, easily explained further, but I think we should move on. It sanctions a man, defines and sanctions a man's freedom of action in a social context. Not only does Robinson Crusoe alone on the desert island have no rights, rights are just not applicable to him, but three men in a lifeboat that will hold only two after a shipwreck, the principle of rights does not apply there. It applies in a social context where one can have civil society under a government. Rights are basically the delineations of what freedom the government should respect and protect. Now, the creator of the theory of right, that's what a right is. It's a protection of your freedom, defining what, are your, what is your proper area of freedom. The guide to grasp this first and lay it out is, of course, John Locke in his second treatise of government, a short little piece that you will enjoy reading if you at all value freedom. It was published in 1688, and the political climate was such that he never admitted he wrote it because he was afraid for his life. But what was Locke's, if Locke understood what a right is, what was his theory of where rights come from? Why? Why do we have rights? Why is this a moral principle that you should be free? And where does it apply? Locke was followed by Jeremy Bentham, a supposed advocate of capitalism who said rights are nonsense upon stilts. And the theory of rights has declined ever since for lack of a base. Here's what Locke says. First statement is not bad. Reason, I'm leaving out some wording. Reason teaches all mankind that being all equal and independent, no one ought to harm another in his life, health, liberty, or possessions. So he said that there is a law of reason. There's a law of nature, which is reason. The rational thing is not to harm another in his life, health, liberty, possession. Well, why is that what reason teaches all mankind? The very next clause of that same sentence is this. For men being all the workmanship of one omnipotent and infinitely wise maker, and he's not talking about Steve Jobs, all the servants of one sovereign master sent into the world by his order and about his business, they are his property whose workmanship they are. God created you, God owns you. You cannot be enslaved to other people because you are enslaved to God. This is not only not a theory for atheists, this is a theory that does not even 
attempt to answer the question in reason and logic, why do we have rights? It's answering the question, why should we not be enslaved by people? Answer, because we should be enslaved by God and presumably by their representatives on earth who speak for God. He didn't, he didn't hold that, uh, but later people did. Now, Ayn Rand came around, came along 260 years later and gave the right answer. Rights are necessary because reason is man's means of survival. And the next point, reason requires freedom. That's it. That's all there is. The mind will not work without freedom. It will not work under orders, compulsion, control. And you need your mind, as every man does, to live your life, to survive to prosper. So that's the, the three things and the takeaway of what are rights and why do we need them. Rights are moral principles. They're not attributes. They're not divine commandments. They're not congressional findings or decrees or the king's permission. They are moral principles that what is right and they say it is right to protect freedom and freedom is the absence of force. Freedom is the absence of force. It's a positive concept in the sense of a good thing, but it is a negative concept in that it says something that could be present is absent, like dryness is the absence of water. Safety is the absence of threat. So some concepts that specify the absence of something nevertheless name something good. And rights and freedom are pre preeminently that. Rights prescribe freedom by proscribing force. The mind cannot work under force and therefore the mind must be free and you must be free to act on your mind. That's all there is. Now, we have suggested readings on any topic in objectivism, including rights, the three main novels, Anthem, Atlas Shrugged, and The Fountainhead. And specifically, whoop, I'm working with a uh, loose mouse. Let me see if I can use the up, up down arrow. Now it's jumping around, sorry about this. There we go. Specifically on politics, the virtue of selfishness is where Ayn Rand's essay, Man's Rights, that I quoted from, is found, and the nature of government, which is a companion piece to the very short essay on the nature of rights, where she spells out the essence of what I said and more. And they are reprinted in Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal, which is the second book showing there. I wanna make one more point before we take, take it to questions. In my own understanding of rights, very important was Ayn Rand's point that rights do not impose any obligations. There's a theory that 
with rights come responsibilities. For instance, people let you live, they don't kill you, so you have to give back to the community. It isn't phrased as baldly as that, but that's what it comes down to. The only thing Ayn Rand says that rights impose upon you is a negative responsibility, a responsibility not to initiate the use of physical force against anyone else. Since your right is the sanction of your ability to choose and act on your choice without interference, so everybody else has the same rights and you are obligated to treat him accordingly. That is not the right to be given things, the right to free medicine, the right to an education, the right to a postal delivery service, the right to a decent standard of living, the right to the values produced by the labor and effort of others. If you had such a right, she said, to Medicare for all or uh, free education, public schooling, everything that's showered upon us today, that would mean a right to enslave others, which is a direct contradiction. It cannot be a right to violate rights. So the line between your rights and another person's right is absolute. And you cannot cross into his area and he cannot cross into your protected area. The only way that you can violate the rights of another person is by laying on hands, by initiating the use of physical force. Now that, that was very uh, impressive to me that rights impose no positive duties or obligations. And the negative that the quote imposes is just that which reality imposes. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't expect others to treat you with as a rights-bearing being when you don't do that for them. Okay, so I think we can now uh, open it up to questions. Thank you for joining us. I'm just jumping to it at a time. Um, I see in the chat there's also a recommendation. Elon, I see you're on. If Hi, I can Harry. Edmund Bonjik says the lexicon and introduction to objectivist epistemology great books. Yes, the lexicon is like a mini encyclopedia of objectivism that covers 400 topics of uh, quoting Ayn Rand's essential statements only on uh, 400 different topics ranging from abortion as the first A to zero, reification of the last entry under Z. It's alphabetized. Okay, Elon, do we have any questions? Yeah, before we get to the questions, and, and it's okay if you wanna end your screen sharing now, Harry, I wanted to just uh, activate a poll for all of our viewers. Uh, if you could take a moment, we we're really interested in finding out more about who uh, our audience is, because we're trying to reach people who are new to Ayn Rand's ideas. So I'm gonna set up this poll and just ask you um, your level of experience with Ayn Rand, how much you've read, how much you know, uh, and we'll leave that up for a couple of minutes or so. And Harry, I just wanted to um, 
thank you for doing the webinar. I really uh, enjoyed it. And uh, we have some questions piled up here and I'm gonna pass on to you, but I'm gonna take moderator's privilege and ask you the first question. Mm -hmm. um, so let, let me uh, put it this way. So I hear people talking about the need to balance rights in different ways and that, that you can't really think about rights as an absolute. So I think you, you've put this in other contexts as, you know, here's an example, the, the, the press um, are responsible for covering the, uh, all kinds of events and there's a trial. And so we want there to be a fair trial for the, the accused, you know, the, all, all the principles that apply there. But what about the right of other people to know through the, the press having access to all these things? So you've got, on the one hand, we've got um, the right to a fair trial. And on the other hand, we've got people's right to know. And it, it seems like there's a clash and you have to know, someone has to adjudicate that kind of clash. Mm -hmm. So how, how would you uh, sort of approach that kind of issue? It's already to adjudicate an apparent clash. The adjudication is the determination by the courts of who has the right who actually has the right, not by decree, but by logic and reason. I mean, that's the job of ultimately the Supreme Court. But the important thing to realize, it's not realized today, is that there can be no conflict of rights. You only balance them because you think there's a conflict. There cannot be a conflict of rights because anyone who thinks there is doesn't know what a right is. A right is the principle for resolving conflicts. So there can't be any conflict among properly understood conflict resolving principles. So just like the right of way in boating, it's I'm a sailor, used to be, and if two boats are approaching each other, the convention is the guy on the starboard tack whose wind is coming over his starboard port has the right of way and the other one has to give way. It can't be that both of them have the right to make the other one give way. It can't be that neither of them may move until the other one has. So right, the rights in politics are like the rights of way. They decide who gets to choose and who must forbear. So the very purpose of rights is to, is to not be balanced, is to say we're not balanced and here we're finding out who is the morally proper chooser in this case? Now, in, the, in this concrete of the public's right to know versus right to a fair trial, there is no such thing as the public's right to know. You have no right to know, meaning to be provided with information by others at no cost, regardless of who owns that information. You. Uh, the press has no special rights also. There's no, um, you know, the press claims the right to protect their sources against the subpoena to reveal their sources. There, is, there are not the rights of man and then the rights of the press, of journalists. Journalists have no additional rights that you, uh, above what you have. So if you have a right to keep quiet about who told you something, then so does the journalist. If you don't, neither does the journalist. So this comes from a collectivist orientation about rights. Well, society has to be informed. Society does not exist. Only individuals exist and society is a name for a group of them interacting under a common understanding. So there's never, there can never be a clash of rights and you can never balance them because they're absolute. 
So we have a few more questions. Let me put two of them together here or to break them apart. So uh, one question is uh, from Steve is asking, do you consider, and you've talked a little bit about this, but maybe you can elaborate. Uh, do you consider Rand's version of or her conception of property rights to be an extension or revision of Locke? So the relationship between Rand's theory and mm. Locke's and what is she adding? And then a related question, maybe you can uh, um, address this, which is, um, from Sally, is there something, uh, um, how do you position Ayn Rand's theory in sort of the history of ideas and why did it come, why, why did it occur in this period in history and not earlier and why in only some places, not others? I'll throw those to you let me Let me take the second one first. It's just kind of more interesting. Most philosophers have been bad people. Not necessarily wicked people, but most philosophers have been neurotic and uh, power hungry, the worst of them, very uh, second handed in their mentalities. There are a few, very few, such as Aristotle, John Locke, and Ayn Rand, who were, Locke is only essentially first handed, Aristotle and Ayn Rand absolutely first-handed. They, they were looking at reality. Now, so you've got three in the history of philosophy. Of those three, John Locke was not brilliant. He's a, a common sense thinker. He's honest. He's uh, uh, thoughtful. He can deal with a certain range of abstractions, but He's not a genius. So of the good, there were two geniuses, Ayn Rand and Aristotle. I'm not including Aquinas in there for reasons I won't go into, but I'm aware that some people would. So you've got a very small universe. You need someone who is first-handed, wants to defend the truth, not rationalizes neurosis and can figure out the answer to all these problems. And uh, she didn't have to come in, you know, she didn't have to be born in 1905. That is a person who had those attributes. Didn't have to be born in 1905. They could have been born in 1880 or 1925. But there are limits, I think, because of the nature of what that person has to work with. And you need a certain degree of civilization or you you can't feed yourself enough to like Locke had a patron Earl uh, of Shaftesbury or Shrewsbury one of those Burries uh, Earl Sandwich one of the Earls was his patron and uh, Aristotle came from a, a family of physicians so they had a little money Greece was fairly free you have to not be killed Maybe there was some genius in the Middle Ages who started talking about reason and they killed him. So there are, there's a very small population. The other question, um, Ayn Rand versus Locke on property rights. Locke, that's a perfect example of what I'm saying. Locke is trying to go in the right direction. He is going in the right direction, but he doesn't nail it. He can't really nail it because his religion and the resulting spiritualized collectivism. You know what his theory of property is? 
you you think of it well you mix your labor with this the thing and it becomes an extension of you which is all metaphor his real theory of property is god gave the land and the earth to all men in common god created communism for us however it turns out that for us to do anything with this collective inheritance from God, we have to divide it up into parcels and each man, you know, for practical reasons has to act on his own. So it's not very good. <laughs> the other part of it is um, he says that 99, this is his actual words, 99% of the value of things is created by individual to apply their effort and uh, work, time and effort, 99%. Well, that gives 1% over to communism. Ayn Rand says it's 100% all values created by a mind understanding the relationship of something to human life. So even if you see an apple on a tree, pick and eat it, that required that you figure out or someone tell you and you understand it that apples are food so everything that is a value is judged by a thinking mind and that's what makes it a value before that it just stuck so her theory is radically better than Locke's. Locke's is a stumbling bumbling attempt in the right direction and it did a lot of good for a lot of years but you see what happens to it when you don't have the proper foundation. Let me put a different question to you now. Um, what do you make of, uh, so this is uh, combining a question from one of the viewers, uh, Matthew, about um, the rights of children of parents who don't protect them. So let me just generalize that a bit to, how do you think about the application of rights to children? And then what responsibilities do parents have what about children whose parents are not fulfilling that responsibility? Should the government be, should there be an agency of the government to step in to protect them? Uh, what can children expect from their parents? Children after birth are independent creatures of our species. They're no longer parasites on the body, growths within the body of the mother. They are separate living functioning human beings, and they have all the rights of a human being, all the rights of a human being. They have the right to patent. They have the right at birth. I'm, I'm kind of deliberately stating this in a, in a provocative way. They have a right to uh, take drugs. They have a right to do it. However, they are not capable of exercising their rights because they don't have the rational faculty. They haven't reached the age, they haven't even reached the age of, of concept formation yet. So the parents are the custodian that exercises the rights of the child for the benefit of the child, not for the benefit of the parents. The parent can't sell the child into slavery. The parent can't, uh, if the child has an independent inheritance from another re relative, Parents can't take that money and spend it on themselves. Parents have a fiduciary responsibility to the child. They act as the child's agent. They can't do it for itself. 
and it can't do it to itself until it reaches the age of majority, in which case it takes over the exercise of the rights that it had all along, but were unable to exercise. Now, if the parents don't do, if they do the wrong thing, they don't act as the proper agent of the child's right, then the government can and should and must step in, take the child away from the parents, entrust it to some other agency or you know an orphanage or, or a willing foster home or whatever it is that that's a detail for the philosophy of law and even more money than that but the principle is the government can protect the rights of children it should give the benefit of the doubt to the parents if the parents think um, a certain medical treatment is necessary or not necessary and it's debatable you go with the parents. If the parents think the child should be raised in a certain religion, you can't take that away from the from the parents' judgment. But if the parents think a, a, a good way to um, bring up a child as a good Christian is to drown him, the, the state would step in. If they think uh, that the child should not be taught any words, the state should step in. If they beat, beat the child or, or starve him, the state should step in. Is, is right. And the court would appoint a guardian. I don't know about an agency. I tend to lean against there being an agency. The court is in charge of adjudicating those things and protecting the child's rights. So I want to put a devil's advocate kind of question to okay. you. Um, so, you know, if my neighbor has a dog, I don't want to see that dog treated cruelly, I would be very upset if I saw that, if the dog weren't being fed or if it was maltreated. And it seems like there, I don't know if it means there have to be animal rights, but what do you think of that concept? So there, there seems to be some basis for thinking, well, it, it's irrational to treat animals badly. Um, is the way to solve it through some concept of animal rights? How do you think no. about that issue? No, yeah. Um... You know, Ayn Rand was asked that in the question period, if you saw someone torturing an animal, you know, could the law stop? And she said, I would very much like to see an argument to that effect. I haven't seen one yet. It's a very sick psychological thing to do to torture an animal. Uh, I think the way to handle, the animal does not have rights, but rights do not exhaust the field of morality. In fact, that was one of the whole points is that you can have a right to do irrational things if they don't harm another human being. But that's because rights come from reason. The animals don't survive by reason. They don't have rights. However, it's immoral, highly immoral, to torture an animal. And the, I don't think that could go on very much in a free society because there's a tremendously strong power in a free society, and that's the power of boycott. Today with the internet, you know, you publicize to the world, this guy did such and such, and you can destroy that guy without using any government. Nobody will sell to him, except, you know, other cruddy people who can't give him what he wants. So there are things you can do. It is immoral. It should not be illegal. Uh, or if it should be illegal, we haven't seen the argument yet. I haven't seen it yet. All right. Um, so here's another question from uh, a viewer. 
um, granted your view of rice. What happens though in situations where the individual is working hard, they are responsible, and yet they can't afford the basic necessities. And then especially in the cases of accidents or health emergencies, how would you approach that? I wouldn't approach it. Okay. It's, it's not my problem. It's not the society's problem. It's a problem of the person and of his parents. But you know, so let in the society we've let already reached. it a bit. So suppose yeah. the person is, um, they're hardworking, they, they have a very modest income, and yet, and then suddenly they, they, they discover that they have a very aggressive cancer. Mm -hmm. Is there some right that they have to get help with that? Nope. How would you justify that? I have cancer, so you can't live. I'm pointing a gun at your head. I'm taking your money because I have cancer. Uh, why didn't he have insurance? Why, wh how did he get, you know, these, these things uh, are, are given without any context, these, these objections. But the premise, if the premise is one man's misfortune is a claim on the time and energy and life of others. It isn't. It isn't. Your, your life is your own. You're going to die. And that means that claim goes unfulfilled. This is the point about um, life or death is the fundamental alternative at the base of all values. You can't present a claim to a corpse, right? You can't say, okay, get out of the grave and start working to cure my cancer. So a person has a choice to live or not. It can't be that there's some consequence beyond his survival that binds him to anything. So all obligation stems from the choice to live. Now, in that, that, that question had a lot more purchase when I started out in politics uh, in the early 60s. There's so much wealth in the world now. There's so much wealth in this country, and, and we're talking about the laws of this country, that you can make a really comfortable living. And I'm not kidding about this. I know that for this for a fact. You can make a really comfortable living begging on the sidewalk in New York City. I could tell you stories, but there's just massive amounts of food, of, of wealth. Doctors will do a lot to treat patients free. They always did before there was Medicare. So it isn't a realistic problem, but in, in general, it's less realistic than one would think. To the extent that it is a real problem, it's not the problem of anyone else. Okay, thanks. Um, so let me um, thread a question here from something you, you said earlier. Um, so in answering uh, the question- uh, uh, Alana, I just have to add, I'm just praying okay. on my mind. Go ahead. This is what principles mean. Either you gear a society to, well, the needs of everyone have to be met before anyone can own his life free and clear. Or that people are not chained to each other. You can't have it, well, Joe and Flatbush has such a bad disease that we're gonna have the government take care of him and we're gonna steal a little from everybody. But that's the only Joe and Flatbush. Uh, Mary in Tahoe, Lake Tahoe, we're not gonna do it. No, you have to have a principle. And if you set up a society on the basis of 
communism, altruism, sacrifice, service of all to all, everyone starves. So in the name of the problem that you're setting up, well, some person can't make enough money, he's in trouble, he's sick, everybody would be that way. If you accept the principle of one man's need is a claim on the life of others. All right, um, let me put a different question to you. And this is um, building on a question from a viewer, uh, Pooja. So uh, she's asking about a comment you made in the presentation and also in answer to some of the questions about the relationship between reason and uh, and freedom and that you said reason requires freedom. So my question, uh, just to broaden it is, um, what is, so how do you, just say a bit about what it means yeah. to say that reason is central to human life, because that seems like a, ma a major premise of the theory of right. Well, yeah, there's two points, if I can. Uh, yeah, go ahead. One is reason is man's basic means of survival. What What is that? Well, see this, see this, see your computer screen. Here we are talking. Uh, I'm... 75 years old and I didn't die at age 30. All that is due to technology. Technology comes from reason. So it's reason that tells us I can, I can eat that apple from that tree. That will get rid of my hunger. I could catch more fish if I wove a net. I could carry more water if I had some something like a, a coconut gourd to put the water in. From the simplest kind of primitive uh, connection that that is to, hey, I could use a Python script to send out my HPLs and get around using a third party supplier. To the, you know, that kind of thing to uh, the principles you're talking about here, it's all science, reason, logic, observation, and induction, and deduction. So that's what it means to say reason is man's means of survival. That's why no animal has an eye watch. Uh, the other point is, why is force anti-mind? Well, it's not just force. It's anything that stands between you and your perception of reality is anti-reason. For instance, suppose it's not for, suppose it's please, P-L-E-A-S. Can't you just, you know, please come to the conclusion that some form of welfare is in desperate cases. Please find a way to save the animals. Think, use your mind and come up with an argument to the conclusion I want. Well, you can't do it because the mind functions by subconscious connections being supplied to the conscious mind for judgment. And what's in the subconscious is filed by your values, not by the person pleading. The same for a gun. The gun a gun is not evidence. It's not the case that you think, uh, well, socialism isn't a good system. It violates rights and it can't produce the goods. And then somebody points out and says, Socialism is a good system. And you say, oh, nobody ever explained it to me before. Yeah, now I see. So force 
can frighten you, can cripple you, can make you stop thinking, but it cannot supply the information that your values can, what you need in order to think. So thinking is a values generated process. That means your values. So it's thought requires freedom to do what you think is in your interest. So let me turn to a different kind of topic. Um, we got some clues from your presentation that you, your view is that today's conception of rights isn't uh, really consistent. It's not well thought out. And it's, and you, the way you describe the legacy of Locke is that it's, it's uh, unstable. Uh, so one question here is uh, from Rakesh, when and, and how do you think we started moving away from the principle of rights? And, and if I may, I'll just broaden that to, can you just give us your, your view of in what way have we, why are we not really on the, the correct understanding um, of rights? W what are some examples of that? Well, those are two different questions. So the examples are easy. Every single piece of legislation before Congress. None of them are in accordance with rights and none of them even take into account the issue of rights. So uh, is there some pending legislation? Uh, what about something like the FDA? So is that not a case of protecting people's lives? The Federal Drug Administration. The Federal Death Administration the FDA, is the greatest mass murderer in all of human history. The drugs that have not been created, have not been tested through the population, are unbelievable. We've had for 100 years, we've had, well, only since 62 has it enlarged its power to say a drug must not only be safe, but effective, even safe. When you put medicine under medical technology under the control of the people who brought you Watergate and ClimateGate and the um, uh, hearings on what's his name, the Supreme Court, uh, Gorsuch, uh, and the other, <laughs> I've already forgotten. When you, when you put it under coercive political control, and now it takes over 10 years to get a drug approved. Rather than experimenting with having people take it who want to take it, to slow the rate of development by a factor of maybe a thousand. Ayn Rand, I have no doubt that Ayn Rand would be alive and healthy today if the FDA had not been found. That's an extreme statement, but I can back it up and I'll, I would do so in another time. Um, so, no, there, there are no exceptions. There's no cases well where you say, um, well, if we could just have the policeman on the corner come in and point his gun at someone, things would go swimming, swimmingly, someone who's not a criminal. Get the police into the lab and have them investigate and their guns and wave their guns around and give orders. That's the way to get medical research booming. That's the way to protect people from snake oil. Have politicians tell them what's snake oil and what isn't. That, that's death. That's why I call it the federal death. Administration. 
administration. Um, uh, don't, don't get me started. Okay. Got me well, started. Let's go back to Rakesh's question because it was yeah. more, I think, maybe a more uh, wider perspective, more philosophical. So his, uh, his question was essentially uh, how and when did we start moving away from whatever? Yes, that one problem. is another question. That's the other side. <clears throat> I'm, I'm thinking whether you can pin it on Descartes or Hume. Hume is the obvious guy. Kant comes in and closes the door. But David Hume, who was a figure just after Locke, uh, is the next generation after Locke. And uh, uh, they were both from the same general area, Britain. Hume was Scottish, but uh, he was a contemporary and friend of Adam Smith. Hume was the great destroyer of reason. His whole philosophy is summed up in the statement, reason is and ought to be the slave of the passions. The other thing he claimed is you cannot get an ought from an is. So morality is out, reason is out. Now, now develop a theory of rights. Well, wait, rights are moral principles based upon the needs of the reasoning mind. There is no reasoning mind. There is no morality. He was not terribly influential except among in intellectuals until Immanuel Kant in the next generation read him and saw his chance and cooked up incredibly difficult arguments to answer as to why Hume was right. And that we didn't have to worry you know, Hume was a dangerous skeptic. Kant was a complacent skeptic. Yeah, we can't reason really is valid, but we have pretty good substitutes for reason. We have shared delusions. That's good enough. So together, you know, Kant, uh, sorry, Hume knocked the props out under everything. And Kant came in and said, and we can never put them back together again, but that's fine. We can muddle on without it. So those two are the destroyers of rights. And you know, there's a theory that's um, circulating objectivism that Kant was a, actually a defender of freedom. But from what I read, he wasn't at all. Uh, I found a book, Kant's Political Philosophy, in which he makes some hair-raising statements on the side of dictatorship. Uh, so there's a question from Facebook. I want to uh, put it to you I th uh, from Katrina. She's asking, in response to your presentation about Rand's theory, um, how does that integrate with the, the claims, and I think this has been around the internet, and we've written about this uh, in answer to it, uh, that she collected Social Security benefits. So how do those two kind of come together? Is it consistent with her view? Is it a contradiction? How yeah. do you see that? Yeah, it's consistent with her view. And she wrote, she didn't do anything without figuring out what was right in principle and acting that way. And she had a theory of when it is right to take government money and when it is not. And she wrote on it in an article called A Question of Scholarships. I take Social Security too. I'm on Medicare. I paid for it. It's my own money coming back. And they can never, ever make up for the strangulation of our wealth 
that's gone on for 100 years. Let me just give you one little concretization. So it is not hypocrisy. It's a matter of principle. Yes, you should take what they give you according to the law as very small step toward restitution of what they have stolen from you. Um, the Social Security Administration, who could be against that, right? I mean, all these old people who have something rather than nothing. Think of the fact that all the money collected over since 1933, I think it was that it was passed for, what is that, 86 years. All the money that was taken from people for social, to pay out of Social Security was paid out immediately. None of it was saved. None of it was invested. Of course, the government shouldn't invest anything. So money that trillions and trillions and trillions of money that could have gone to pay for production, technological advance, medical advance, when instead to pay out his benefits to the then retiring and the disabled and so forth. It was consumed, it was consumptive expenditure, not productive. So had that money, had people been saving their own money, providing for their own retirement, they would have invested it, even if they put it in a savings account. The bank loans out that money for productive purposes. So the money that was frittered away would have gone to make us all wealthier over 86 years compounded. I mean, it's staggering. So we're, we're coming up to the top of the hour. I think it's time for one more question. So I, I'll put this one to you. Um, um, let me find the question I was going to put to you. Um, So the, the general question is, it seems like young people today uh, are attracted to what they regard as socialism. Do you have any sort of response to that or assessment of it? Yeah, don't be, and it's bad. I mean, obviously, let me not start obviously. Back when the Soviet Union fell, in 89, one writer declared the end of history, meaning that there would no longer be any dispute. Nobody would be claiming socialism is better than capitalism. It was obvious that, not the capitalism, but the, the mixed economy, which he didn't call it, had won. And communism had fallen, and capitalism, for that matter, had gone from laissez-faire to middle. So there was no you know, the, the extremes were gone. And you wondered what would be the next bad thing to arise, and religion was the obvious candidate. Well, since then, there's been a resurgence, and socialism is now hip. Why? Because of the bad educational system, young people don't know how to think and don't know the facts of history. So... Uh, you know, ask any young person that you see, how many people do you think were slaughtered by socialists? How, what do you think happened in the socialist countries, all oh, in socialist England, in Yemen, in 
red China. Why did China suddenly leap forward in India when they abandoned? So did you know that India used to have socialism under Gandhi? And uh, why did they leap forward recently? They don't know anything, right? So they don't have a historical background, but more than that, they, they can't think because, I mean, not every single one of them, does. you have to be self-taught to learn how to think because the educational system under the influence of John Dewey uh, has been destroyed. And that's why uh, the objectivism is getting a better hearing outside of the US because people in countries less affected by John Dewey know how to think more mm -hmm. than students here. Well, we're, we're basically almost at time, so I want to take a moment and thank everyone who's joined us today live on Zoom and on Facebook. And for those who are watching uh, on YouTube, uh, if you want us to answer a big question on this series, Philosophy for Living on Earth, we'd love your input. You can send us emails at webinars at aynrand.org, and you can go to our website where we have a, a link to uh, submit questions. I want to tell you about next week's webinar, and we'll be joined by Dr. Gregory Salmieri, and his topic is September 14th, uh, same time, same place, 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 a.m. Eastern. He will be ask, answering the question, isn't everyone selfish? Isn't everyone selfish? Uh, that should be really interesting. So if you are watching on YouTube and you haven't subscribed or on Facebook, please uh, join the series. We will send you updates as soon as the session is about to begin and give you all the info on how to join live. And uh, let me thank you again, Harry, for taking the time thanks. to join us today on Saturday. It was a pleasure having you, and uh, thanks for uh, all these questions as well for all, all of you viewers. Thank you, Roland. Thank you. We'll see you all next time. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.